0: this evening to Ephesians chapter number two excuse me Ephesians chapter number two and I want to review just very briefly uh, verses one to nine just with a small outline and then we'll look at verses 11 to 22 in just a few minutes this chapter is a very important and precious chapter to those people who are Christians in verses one to nine uh, in verses one to three Paul reminds the Ephesians of what we are by nature, by our natural birth, what we are by nature. You know, people say if you take a person, you give them good food and good housing, good education, that they'll turn out to be just a, just a wonderful person. But, but that happens with, with people sometimes. They have the, the best parents, the best home, the best school, but then all this wickedness pours out of them at some point in the future. That's because their nature. Their natures. Listen to what Paul says in verse 2. Where in time past she walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or behavior in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This is a universal truth. A universal truth. Everyone who you see out there living like a heathen, they're doing that because that's in their nature. And if you hadn't been given a new nature by the Holy Spirit, you'd be a heathen too. You'd be a heathen too. Even even Christians sometimes act heathenish because the old nature is still present. Paul says in 1 to 3, this is what we are by nature to remind us. You know, friends, it's good to remember what we really are. It's good to remember what we used to be and then think about what we are now in Christ. So Paul reminds them what they are by nature. Then in verses 4 to 7, Paul tells us what we are by, <laughs> via the supernatural. Something takes place upon us. God does something to us. He makes us alive. He changes us. He gives us a new nature, and now we are a different kind of people. And he does this in verse 4 because of his mercy and his great love wherewith he loved us. Now, what has he done in this great love? He's quickened us. He's made us alive. He's given to us everlasting life. He's given to us real, true life that will never end. And he's done this for us supernaturally. It's not something we we do for ourselves. And that's what you see in verses 8 to 9. Paul says how we got this supernatural life. We didn't get it by special works. We didn't get it by a special recipe. We didn't get it through divine alchemy. <laughs> we got it by the direct action of God. He give, gave us this through salvation. He showed us what we are. In verses 8 and 9, he saved us through faith in him. Through faith in him. One of the most precious parts of this reading is in verses 6 and 7, where Paul reminds us what we're going to have for all eternity. Have you ever thought about it? We, we, we get kind of bent out of shape. We get kind of upset in this life because we don't have everything we wish we had. Uh, an old guy in uh, Arkansas told me one time, he said, never mistake money for wealth. And At the time, I thought, that's an unusual thing to say. You think wealth meant you had money. But you know what? If you have, your, if you have health, I'll say it like this. Because your health may not be that great. But if you have people in your life who love you, a husband or a wife or a friend or a church, that's wealth. These people who care for you. And then, you know, you have a few kids, grandkids, you got a car to drive, even if it's a Model T, (laughs) held together with a bailing wire. You have, being content with what you have is real wealth. Being content with what you have. Now, I think we all have a television at our house. I can remember when I was a kid, we had a 12-inch black and white. Remember those, 12-inch black and white? And I thought, yeah, with knobs. <laughs> I was my dad's remote control. <laughs> He'd say, turn the channel. But that was, we, were, that we had that. But then, you know, we went to see my grandparents, and they had a big old color TV, console TV. Then you go home and watch TV in black and white. After seeing it in color, you hear like, oh, man, this is not the way to live. But, you know, could you still, could we, could you, could you be content with a black and white TV? Oh, sure sure we could. There's there's sometimes we watch movies at the house and sometimes the best ones are guess what? Filmed in black and white. <laughs> I was watching Angel and the Badman the other day and uh the little ad, the little the little commercial for it showed it in color. I thought they colorized Angel and the Badman with John Wayne and uh not remember the girl's name. But when I started watching it, it was in black and white. I was watching a black and white movie on a color TV. <laughs> the irony was not lost on me. But we, we get discontented with what we have. Real wealth is being content with what you have. But Jesus says here that in the world to come, in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This is an interesting thing. We're saved now. Saved now, but we're broke. We don't feel like we're wealthy. But when you have salvation, you have everything. And Paul says it's going to take the rest of the ages for us to really grasp what we have in salvation. That's your greatest possession. To know Christ, to know your sins have been pardoned and taken away. That's the greatest thing you can ever possess. And when you get bent out of shape about the other things in life, it could be that we're focusing on the wrong things. Christ is our greatest possession. It's our greatest treasure. And that's what, and then in verses 8 and 9, Paul says this comes to us by grace. By grace are you saved through faith. You're not saved by good works. Aren't you happy about that? Man, I'm glad I'm not saved by good works, and I'm glad I'm not secured by good works, because I would come up short. I would come up short, and so would you. And then in verse number 10, Paul slips something in here on us, and he says we are his workmanship. The salvation that we are, our standing with God is through His workmanship, not our own. But what are, what are we supposed to do? We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has saved us to serve Him. Saved us to serve Him. When you're out there and at work, and school, whatever you're doing, Remember, you're the Lord's servant. You're God's man. You're God's woman. You're God's boy. You're God's girl. You're serving the Lord out there. You may say, well, I'm not down there passing out tracts and preaching. Well, you don't have to be doing those things to serve the Lord. Jesus said in the last few chapters of Matthew, He said if you give a cup of water to a thirsty soul, if you visit the sick, if you visit those who are in prison, all these little things that we just do, these, kind, these acts of kindness that we do, these are all the works of God. These are little Christian behaviors, Christian behaviors that we do as we go through life. We're God's servants. Now, this new life we have is a supernatural life. It's contrary to the old nature. The old nature is selfish, selfish. The new nature is generous. In Proverbs, it says the liberal soul shall be made fat. <laughs> what that means is the person who's liberal and they're giving to God with their life, the person who is, a, who, is a, who is a refreshing spring, that person will be blessed, will be blessed. We look at being fat as uh, having a curse. And I think one of the kids told me one time they were, uh, I don't know, they were, they were reading about D.L. Moody. And in his day, if you were fat, that was uh, people knew you were doing well. Doing well in life because you had plenty of food to eat. You had an abundance. And so uh, fat is a blessing. The liberal soul shall be blessed. shall be made fat. And God wants us to serve him as his servants. Sometimes we don't, think of, we don't think of ourselves as that way. We're his servants. We're his representatives in this world to do what's right, to do truth, to love him. So that's what we are. What we are by nature what well, we are by supernatural work of God, how we got it. We got it by grace through faith. And then we have a purpose. We are God's servants. We're God's servants. And then in verses 11 to 22, Paul deals with a very big issue, and I'm going to call this the new people. What does God do with these regenerated, now alive, supernaturally alive people? What does He do with these people He makes them into a new community, into a new people. And it's composed of Jews and Gentiles. Now, let's read down to the end of the chapter, and then uh, we'll ease our way back through it. Paul says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, but that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Now, this is, this is kind of code for Judaism, for Jews and Gentiles. The Jews call Gentiles the uncircumcision. They're uncircumcised. They're the uncircumcised Philistines. They're the unclean. They're the barbarians. God said that his people had to be circumcised, and they would say, you're not circumcised. You're not of God. You don't know God. You're outside of the community of God. So Jews are the circumcision, Gentiles are the uncircumcision. And Paul says here that the circumcision is in the flesh, it's something made with hands. Something made with hands, something natural. And then in verse 12, that at that time ye were, in the time past, Gentiles, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles are being brought together. They're being brought. There's the circumcision made without hand, made with hands. Now Paul he talks about in Colossians. There's a circumcision made without hands. It's something spiritual. There's physical. And spiritual. And Paul says these Gentiles through Christ are being brought into the promised people. The blessed people. The new people is what I'm calling it. And then verse 14. Talking back about the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one. That's the Jew and the Gentile made them one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain or two one new man, one new body, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, By the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, the Gentiles, who were far off, and to them that were nigh, the Jews. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Paul's teaching here is that Jews and Gentiles are brought together into one body, into one people, into one community. By Christ, Christ has taken these two peoples and joined them into one and said, "This is my body. these are my people." And He's done it by His blood. This is a spiritual thing, verse 18. We both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, verse 19, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. He says, you Jews and Gentiles, you're no longer are you Jew and Gentile. You're not foreigners. You may have to put it in terms like this. You're no longer American and Russian or American and Canadian or American and fill in the blank. No more, he says. You're one in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. The reason Paul is having to talk about this is if, when you read is reason number one, okay? When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, there was no New Testament, right? There was only the Old Testament. And when you read the Old Testament, you don't get very far through it until you see God has this one particular people, distinct from all the other peoples of the world, the Jewish nation, the children of Israel, and those are God's people. You see it all the way through the, the Old Testament. It's Israel, 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 Israel. Everybody else looks like Nothing. It looks like he only cares about Israel. It's an interesting thing to, look, to think about. And now in the New Testament, Jesus, while he was here, in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 23 and Acts 1, Jesus said that this thing that he was creating, this new body, this one body, Jesus says, this is not just Jews only. This is Jews and Gentiles. That's why Matthew 28 says, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing, it, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, same sentiment. Universal declaration of the gospel because it doesn't matter anymore what your bloodline is. It doesn't matter if you're born a Jew or born a Gentile. All that matters is if you're born again. And so Paul, Paul says, this is the way it is. And In the early Christian church, all the Christians had to read was the Old Testament. And so, say, you're a Gentile, and, and you get saved, and you go down, and you join the church, and the pastor, he says, hey, I'm going to give you a Bible. He gives you Genesis to Malachi. <laughs> and you start reading through it, and you're like, where's the Christian stuff? <laughs> Where am I? All you read is about Jews, Jews, Jews. And so Paul tells them that, you see, what Christ has done is he's brought you into that special family. He's brought you into that community. You're no longer strangers from the Commonwealth of Israel. You're no longer a foreigner. You've been brought together. You may say, well, does that mean that I'm a Jew? In one sense, it does mean you're a Jew. Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29 says that those who are. Really, Jews are those who have the circumcision of the heart. You see this, this idea growing of this new people, of this single community, this body that belongs to God. Verse 19. Now, a second, a second reason Paul is talking about this, first of all, is because the only Bible was a Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. The second reason is the Jews, the Israelites, even when they became Christians, they were still very Jewish. And they didn't really like the way the Gentiles were coming into, the, into this new thing. Remember in Acts chapter 15, there was, a big, there was a big controversy. The Jews were still, they were saved, born again, but they were still living like Jews, which means they were still following the dietary laws, still following the dress codes and all the things of the Old Testament, except for the sacrificial system. They're still following all the rules. Now, my friend, if you've read the Old Testament, you've read all those rules, Man, you don't want to do that, do you? It's, it's, it's burdensome to your mind. They say there's like 613 individual commands in the Old Testament that the Jews are trying to follow. They were still observing this Sabbath day, not working on the Sabbath day. Now, I didn't grow up this way, but I have heard that back in the old, old times that some Christian families, they would do all their cooking on Saturday night. Because on Sunday, they went to church and then didn't do anything all day Sunday. They didn't play ball. They didn't, they didn't do anything. They didn't cook. They didn't wash. They just went to church and, and just no fun on Sunday. They observed a strict Sabbath, kind of how the Jews would do. But these Jewish Christians are seeing the Gentiles come in, and the Gentiles don't have this traditional way of living. So, for example, they would have a church potluck in the early Christian church. This is just for illustration. They have a church dinner in the early church as Christians and Jews. And the Jews, because they followed a dietary system... They bring in a particular kind of meat, pork—not pork. Not pork. <laughs> the Jews would bring in, you know, beef. They bring in a brisket. They would bring in a leg of lamb. Bring in some beef tenderloin, and they bring in all these things, and they're eating. But then the Gentiles—they come in, and they got the pork loin. They got the uh, bacon. They got the bacon wrapped pork loin, which is probably—it's probably not right to eat <laughs> to have that much pork at one time. But, but they're coming together now at the church, and the Jews are seeing what the Gentiles are eating, and they're like, we, no. But the, but the Gentiles are saying, but it's so good. Taste this bacon. And the Jews are like, no, I'm not going to do it. No, that's wrong. That's a sin. And the Gentile says, what do you mean it's a sin? And the Jew goes, don't you know? And there's a conflict. And so the Jews, this is something Paul deals with in Acts 15. He deals with it in Galatians. He deals with it in Colossians. Because the Jews, they attempted, the Jews, they attempted to, to force the Gentiles to be like them. We well, you know how that goes. It doesn't go too well, does it, it cause a problem? And you think about it, if you're a Gentile person and you like the way you've been doing things and you want the Jews to change, so there's a conflict. And what Paul is doing here is saying these Jewish and Gentiles, the Jews and Gentiles, they're not two opposing people. They've been made one in Christ. By the time the New Testament is over with, the, the Old Testament, there's no more... Well, but by the time the Bible comes to a close, the New Testament in history, Christianity looks less and less Jewish. Less and less Jewish. In fact, when you read the Gospel of John you see john always mentioning the disciples and jews as two separate people because by the end of the one, of the first century john wants them to know the jew, jews are not christians christians are christians you can't if you're a jew you have to convert to christianity to be a christian jews are not automatically christians And so there's a conflict here, and what Paul is doing at Ephesus is he's saying, you guys can't be divided up about this. You're one in Christ. This is what Christ has made you. You are no more strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens. Notice these words he uses to describe this new community, this new people. He uses terms like, "You're you're not a foreigner or a stranger anymore. Let's put it in modern talk. You're not an illegal alien anymore. Now you're a fellow citizen. You're a fellow citizen. Just like you and I, I think, I think we're all Americans here this evening. We're all American citizens. We share in that. And we're concerned about the fate and future of our country. Right? And Paul says, now you, you guys, Jews and Gentiles, you're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. You're part of the body of Christ. You have a, you're, you're together. You're not strangers anymore. And then, in the last part of verse 19, he says, And of the household of God. These terms are all being strung together by Paul to point out that Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ are members of the same thing. Members of the same thing. All on the same team. Verse 20, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So there's this connection. There's, there's something that Jesus has erected. In the last part of verse 20, it says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the, he's the guiding principle for this new thing. We're all resting. One building, one fellowship, one body, one kingdom, one household, one people. And, and it's not identified as Israel or Gentile. Paul talks about it all through Ephesians as the body of Christ. The body of Christ. It's we're his body. All those who are born again are a part of the body of Christ. They're connected to him. In verse 21, In whom all the building fitly framed together, it groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. There's this this connection. There's this structure. Here's another word, temple, a building. We're brought together. So is Paul confusing? Is there a whole bunch of different things? They're just different ways of saying the same thing. There's oneness here. Jews and Gentiles brought together. Brought together in spite of their different ethnicities, their different proclivities, their different cultures. They're brought into the new people, into the body of Christ and their... This new habitation. Verse 22. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God, through Christ, has brought His people together in one body. Now, this body is manifested or presented in local churches. We see. Now, the local church, the visible church is, is always imperfect because every visible church We try to have only saved people be members, right? That's what we try to do. But not everybody who's a member of of a Christian church is saved. Some people think they're saved. Some people know they're not saved. Here's how it goes. When I was a boy, my father became pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Flora, Illinois. My dad joined the church. My mother joined the church. I joined the church, and my brother joined the church. Now, only... Only three of those people were Christians, but all four of them were members of the church. <laughs> I had been baptized. I said I wanted to join up, but I wasn't a Christian. And that's what ha- it happens a lot. All, all across America, there are Christian churches that have people who are saved and not saved who are members. It doesn't happen intentionally, but it just happens. So the visible church is always imperfect. It's always imperfect. But this body of Christ is perfect because it's composed by Christ himself. It's all the born-again people who've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. And we're built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, I'm going to give you just a couple things, and then we'll be finished. I want to take this idea of a habitation of God of a temple of God, of a body of oneness, and just talk about us in our local fellowship for a second, in our local, in this church. We have to maintain the bond of unity in the local church. We have to maintain the bond of unity. There's only one person who wants to see a church be deconstructed. And you know who that is? It ain't Jesus It's Satan. Satan wants to deconstruct. And we have to work at it. We have to work it at staying together, at being with one another. There's a habitation of the God through the Spirit. We have to to be aware that there's always adversaries. There's always an adversary who wants to wreck everything. Think about how it is. Every marriage, every marriage... Who wants to see that marriage fail? Who wants to see a divorce? Does Jesus want to see a divorce? Certainly not. It is Satan who wants to see a divorce. Why? Because it, re- it messes everybody up. Messes everybody up. Kids get messed up. Man and wife get messed up. Families get messed up. You, you, you guys know how it goes. Satan gets in these things and breaks things up in marriages, in homes. Satan wants to see parents divided against their children, and see conflict in the home between moms and dads and sons and daughters. Satan wants to break all those things up. He's after it. He's after. The, he's after. He's after the big church. The spiritual church, the spiritual, He's after that. He wants to break that up, but he can't. He can't do anything about that. But he works at the at these little at the little bodies. These habitations, he comes around and he, he causes dissension and problems and difficulties. Now, when you take that thought into the rest of Ephesians, what you find Paul doing in chapter 4, he talks about their church more in chapter 3, about the mystery of it. That there's something that's revealed now that the Jews in the Old Testament didn't, didn't know about. Although There's some debate about that. In chapter 4, 5, and 6, he talks about working together. Listen to what he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness. This is how we're to walk in this world, to live with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. We, a, a substitute word would be here like tolerating one another in love. You know, there's tolerating without love and tolerating with love, right? When you go to the restaurant and the, uh, the waitress and they're not getting your food out there, you tolerate it, but you're not tolerating it in love. Have you ever gotten so bent out of shape at a restaurant that when the wait- waitress came, you're just you're, the server, you're just kind of mad? And you can't, it's hard to even talk civilly because you're so wound up You've been waiting 25 minutes and, you know, you've drank 17 Dr. Peppers and, and you haven't seen the food yet. And you're kind of, you got, I want to eat. That's not tolerating or forbearing in love. But if you go to your kid's house, to your mom's house, to your girlfriend's house, <laughs> to your boyfriend's house, and they, and they're delaying the supper, they're not getting it done. They say, oh, just a few minutes longer, just a few minutes longer. It's almost ready. How do you, how do you react then? Oh, it's a little different thing because the love is involved. You'll put up with a lot when you love somebody. You'll put up with a lot when you love somebody. You ever seen these people who are married to somebody who abuses them, yells at them, knocks them around? And you're like, why, why don't they leave them? And then they say, oh, I love them. And you're like, how can you love them? But you know how it is with the people you love. You put up with all kinds of stuff from them because you love them. Forbearing one another in love. Verse 3, endeavoring. An endeavor is an attempt. It's a valiant effort. It's a work. It's an undertaking. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Why should we be concerned about it? Verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And unto every one of us is given the grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Paul says there's this oneness that must be maintained. There's a desire for it that we have. He says this is how we should walk worthy. Walk in this way. We are the body of Christ. We are the people of God. We're God's household. We're God's family. We're God's children. And how does he want his children? How does he want his children to go along? To go along in love and care for one another. And this is the new people. This is the new, the new group. God takes these regenerate people and he has made them one. It doesn't matter their ethnicity anymore. These things are not important. doesn't matter how they were brought up. If they've been born again, they've been brought into God's family, made alive by the Spirit, brought nigh by the blood of Christ, and we are fellow citizens together. Not strangers, but members of the same household, the new people. I trust the Lord to add His blessing to the reading of His Word. All right, Valerie, you switch off the live stream and, uh,